Mornings from midnight to 1 a.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijay Nathan. Um, we're just starting the recording, so welcome to Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, Truth to Power Show on Radio, on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijay Nathan. Um, today, we're going to be having a guest, Clyde J. Brannon. Um, so he's going to be joining us by phone in one moment. But as we start to... Um, Figure that out. Um, I'm going to be playing some music from. Uh... Oh, there he goes. Yeah. Oh, there's Clyde. Uh, Park Clyde. Hello? Yes, Trey. Hi, How welcome. are you tonight? Good, good. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. <clears throat> so, uh, we're going to start. So, I just introduced you. Um, and we're going to start the conversation off about. Now, just for the audience to know, uh, Clyde, Park Clyde is a. Um, uh, Thai Theravadan uh, monk, Theravadan monk, but we'll go a little bit to the backstory and a little bit into the uh, uh, what he does as a, as a monk, as a monastic. Um, so why don't we start off just by telling us how did you come into uh, your role now and tell us what your role is as a meditation teacher, and then we can go a little bit into your backstory and then we can t- talk a little bit about the teachings. Yeah, thank you. Okay. What I do here at the temple now is I run a uh, meditation retreat for uh, foreign, uh, for international uh, meditators. Uh, they come over here usually anywhere from three to five to days up to three months. And I instruct them in uh, Vipassana meditation and uh try and give them a little bit of a background on a Buddhism, just basic Dhamma. Uh, in addition to the retreat, I teach uh, English to the Malvis monks here at the Temple School. Uh, they're from the uh, Hill Tribe villages. They are basically uh, at a disadvantage and uh, they come here because the education for them here at the temple is free, and we uh, we uh, give them a full high school education, and then once they graduate, they go on either to a Buddhist university or to a university to another university if they can uh, have a scholarship or whatever to do that. Excellent, but excellent. Those are my, okay. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And uh, how did you get into this uh, vocation, or how did you get it? Tell us a little bit about your history, where you were born, and where you grew up, and how how you came into this. Okay. Um, I was born in Wichita Falls, Texas. Uh, I'm a Texan, and uh, we moved around a lot when I was... uh, When I was younger, uh, I went to uh, school in Florida, and uh, finished out uh, my uh, university degree, uh, bachelor's degree in finance in, uh, in Central Florida at Stetson University. And then I just uh, went out to my first job uh, kind of in the oil fields of uh, Wyoming and uh, drifted around uh, in the oil business for, uh, oh, a few years, and uh, wound up out in Hawaii, worked on a microalgae project there, uh, kind of took care of my parents while they were ill, 
And it was during that time that things were kind of rough for me. And uh, I moved uh, out to Los Angeles uh, and was a uh, coast-to-coast truck driver. I drove uh, big trucks, uh, I think, every state in the United States except Alaska, and I did live in Hawaii, but I didn't drive a truck there. and just got stressed out. I was just, uh, after my parents passed away and, and being a caregiver for them, it was, uh, my life just, uh, kind of started taking a turn for, uh, not, not in a real good place. And I came over to, uh, Thailand on a vacation and, uh, met a, uh, a Thai lady that's, uh, She's nine years older than I am. And uh, Pa and I, we've been together for uh, 20 years. And when I uh, ran into the problem of uh, just basically getting stressed out in Los Angeles, it was just the distress levels, and I was kind of coping with that and then not, well, real good way, uh, it was... Uh, it was taking its toll on me both physically and mentally. And she suggested to me that I try uh, meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's Thai, and she said, you know, not, not go live at a temple, but just try meditation. So at that point, I called uh, Ajahn uh, Jeff, uh, Tanishiro Biku in Escondido in California at Wat Meta. And I talked to him, and he said, uh, well, you can come now or just give me two weeks' notice. And uh, I wasn't really ready to go do that yet, so I waited about three years and called him back. And in the three years' time, the mindfulness movement had caught caught on in the United States. He was completely filled. He said, you know, you can come in six months. But uh, you can only stay for two weeks, and I really needed a place where I could go and find some peace and uh, and just get away from everything. So I got on the Internet and uh, found uh, Watsi Barung here. Uh, they had an, uh, a British monk and a uh, New Zealand monk. And I and said I was welcome to come and spend five or six months here. So I came, uh, got on the plane, left everything behind, flew over here to Thailand, and uh, stayed here for, I was here for four months as a meditator. I just dressed in white and learned Vipassana meditation. And after... Uh, about about four months, then the vice abbot that was here asked me to ordain as a uh, novice monk. Mm-hmm. And I ordained as a novice monk, and after I'd been in Thailand for a year, I went back to Los Angeles um, just to visit and uh, stayed there two months. And I stayed most of the time uh, at, a, at, a, uh, at a Buddhist temple in the, at a Thai temple in Los Angeles. And I knew then that if I did want to move back to the United States, that I could move back in robes, that there would be enough support in Los Angeles for a monk. Mm. But uh, 
I, I stayed there for the two months, then came back over here to Thailand and uh, finished being a novice monk for a year. And uh, due to my age and that, it was suggested that uh, that I should go ahead and ordain as a full BK. Mm. So when the uh, range retreat was due to start in about a month after I got back, and uh, the abbot ordained me for the range retreat as a uh, full monk. I took my higher ordination then. That was about... That was seven years ago. Excellent, excellent. And that was really how I got to be a monk. Excellent, excellent. So tell us a little bit about, you use the term Vipassana meditation. I'm sure most people know kind of vaguely what that means and, and what that entails. But tell us a little bit more about what, what Vipassana meditation means in regards to other meditations or how, what makes it unique in regards to the forms of meditation and, and what that entails. Yeah. Okay, uh, the positive meditation is also referred to as insight meditation. Uh-huh. And we deal with, uh, part of it, we deal with uh, concentration. It's, uh, there is a certain amount of concentration involved in it, uh, like some are key. But, uh, but mainly we look at, at the mind, at, uh, at the thoughts the mind has. Why does the mind have these thoughts? Uh, you get where you can learn to recognize a thought as, it's, as it arises. You learn to look at a thought and realize that it is just a thought. Yeah. That there's no reason that we, that we have these random thoughts all day long but we don't need to attach to them. Mm. A lot of times we'll attach to them, oh, that thought makes me angry, and you weave a little story around that thought, and pretty soon you're, you're lost in that thought. Whereas with the pasta, you learn just to take the thought, look at it, don't attach to it, it's just a thought, and then you can sit there and observe it and actually watch the thought cease. Mm. And you can see the arising and the ceasing of the thoughts. You learn that you don't have to attach to any, to any of these thoughts. You just sit there, have the thought, and just continually uh, focus on your breath or focus on the uh, rising and falling of the abdomen, or if you're doing your walking meditation, on your, uh, you know, right goes dust, left goes dust, that you just very peacefully can stay there, have the thoughts, and we note the thoughts. We'll note, like, happy, 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 or sad, sad, sad. We'll note the thought, and then the thought will disappear. And we find as long as we're doing that and sitting and just observing that the mind will eventually calm down and we have fewer and fewer thoughts and then things become much more peaceful and tranquil for us. Yeah, it seems like when the when you subside these thoughts, these anxiety thoughts especially, you're able to respond to the world more authentically because you're not interfered with, with judgments, with clouded by you know, like by our um, impressions, our our narrative-driven mind, you know, trying to get beyond that, would you say, and trying to get to the mo- moment, uh, reacting authentically in the moment without 
these would you say thoughts are interfering or how it how, uh and how would you phrase that and like basically like when you're when you know when people think oh you know problem solving and all this kind of thing but you're able to do it more effectively i guess without these interfering you know uh passing thoughts right would you say Absolutely, absolutely. You 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 you're, you you view the, you view the world in the present moment. We don't worry about what's going on in the past. We don't try and anticipate the present. We can plan for the future, and yes, even monks, we do make plans. We do know what we're going to do tomorrow. We have schedules, and and we do plan things out. But we don't get caught up in the anxiety of trying to anticipate what's going to happen. We we learned that it's just that we have the six senses. We have our seeing, our smelling, our touching, our hearing. And we can just know hearing, hearing, hearing. I don't have to attach to the fact that, oh, that's a dog barking. Mm. I don't have to attach to that someone that's standing in front of me and they're angry and yes, they're raising their voice and they're sitting there and they're in anger. They're not really aware of what, of 100% of what's going on with them because they're clouded by their emotion of anger they can sit there with their voice raised. I can very calmly just stand there in front of them and note hearing, 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 without yeah. hearing, without listening to whatever they're saying. Yeah, yeah. And just not engage with them, and then you know, and and uh, de-escalate a uh, a conflict that way. Excellent, excellent. And uh, what was the, you know, you made the choice to become a novice monk and then a full monk. Uh, what was the advantages, you think, in your perception of ordaining as opposed to practicing this as a lay person? What were some of the advantages you think of, of ordination and, and how does that enrich your practice? And how is specifically ordination? And we'll go into the day-to-day life of a, of a monk in one second. But first, just um, kind of preparing for that. Um, what do you think of the, of the advantages of, of ordination? Uh, the advantage of ordination was uh, when I ordained, I ordained at age 56, and I was basically here a novice monk, and my fellow novice monks were high school students. Yeah. So I, I was there with a group of people that were less than half my age. It was an interesting and humbling experience. But um, I learned the uh, chanting. I learned how to put on robes. I learned how to act like a monk. And that was probably the hardest thing was learning how to act like a monk because in Thailand and in Thai society, they grow up with monks. They know how to act. And to come over from the United States with no experience in Buddhism and then put on the robes and there's a certain way that a monk should walk. There's a certain way that a monk should talk. Your character should change. And all these little things and 
that are Buddhist, and then all the Thai cultural things to learn uh, were probably the hardest part. And that was probably the one thing I gained out of being a monk for for a year was uh, being a novice monk for a year was the fact that I had to, uh, that there was just so much to learn. Mm. And, and even though, and even though I was learning it from, from high school students as an adult, I, I still needed to learn the chanting from them. I needed to learn that this is how we sit. This is how we eat. This is the order that we line up in. There's just many, 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 uh, and, and they're subtle things. They're things that uh, were difficult for me to pick up on because I, I haven't been a truck driver. Having worked in the oil field, I was a little bit rough. And, and, and I would still uh, have anger, anger and express that anger in a way it's different from when a Thai becomes angry or, or different when a Thai needs to express themselves. And I had to learn that no, you're in rogue. And, and the main thing I had to get used to was the fact that everybody was looking at me. Yeah. Because as far as I know, I am the only foreign monk in this town. And I believe in the whole province of Chiang Mai, I believe there is one more American monk. I have not met him. But it's, it's like in, in, the, in the state of Chiang Mai, there are two American monks. And so there's, uh, the, everything I do is watched, and it's still watched today, but I've just gotten used to it. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about your daily life. Yeah, let's go into your daily life and uh, what? Yeah, go ahead. You were saying something. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and then, as a novice monk, I only had ten rules. Mm -hmm. So when I went back to the uh, to to America, due to my age and I wore my robes. The uh, the monks there assumed that I was a full monk, and uh, one day we went down the interstate, and I, and the monk goes, "Well, you have to do this because this is a monk rule," and I'm like, "No, I, I don't have the uh, 227 precepts. I don't have the 227 monk rules. I'm a novice. I just have the 10 rules." So if I want to go to the beach, I can still go to the beach. If I want to do this, I can still go do that. Yeah. And, and the band kind of swerved, and he's like, what? Uh, no, <laughs> no. Uh, you need to ordain as a full monk. And I think actually uh, one of the monks, one of the abbots I was staying at his temple in America, I actually think he called over here. To uh, to watch Sibirung and spoke with Doctor Apis at the Abbot, and it was suggested that I do take the higher ordination uh, when I got back over here. 
They did offer to ordain me in America, but I just didn't feel that would be fair since I'd trained here in Thailand and was planning on going back here in Thailand. Excellent, excellent. So that was uh, that was really how I how I progressed from from a meditator to a novice monk and then to higher ordination. Mm. And tell us a little bit about your daily life now. Um, what do you do? What time do you wake up? And what is the, the alms rounds? All this kind of stuff. That tell us a little bit about the experience of the daily life in and the in the temple. Yeah, and the what. Okay, the, the uh, daily life for me is I wake up uh, at uh, 5.50. I'm, uh, I, I usually go out on my alms round. I go on a, a shorter alms round at the small market that's close to the temple, um, and I usually leave the temple at 6.15. I'm back at the temple by 6. 45 or 7 o'clock. And at that point, I usually take the food I get on arms round and take it up to the dining room and drop it off for the novices to eat. For the novices that um, some of them do uh, to the, the small village and sometimes we have a large number of novices um, they all don't go out on alms round. So I take that up to the uh, to the dining area where the novices eat, and then I will just eat a uh, very small breakfast myself and uh, get ready, uh, change my robes out of the robes that I've worn on my alms round into uh, to a nicer set of robes to wear over to the school. And then classes at the school start at uh, at 9 a.m. And I go over there and teach uh, English conversation uh, on the classes that are assigned to me. They still have English uh, grammar. They have uh, a, a full high school course load that I just uh, teach the conversation. And I will stay over there and make myself available to students that want to learn the uh, to learn conversation. And then uh, I'll have lunch with the students. That's my one main meal of the day is uh, the school lunch. And then I'll uh, hang, uh, stay around after lunch for uh, to be available in case the students. Like this, there's a group of them that are interested in English. They like to sit at a table, and we have English conversation after lunch, just casual, not not in a classroom setting. And then uh, finish with my students, and I will walk down to the retreat in the afternoon uh, and meet with the uh, meditators that I have at the retreat. And when I was trained, I trained at Wapakot Si Chom Tong. And when I trained there, we met with our Pra Ajahn once a day for about 10 or 15 minutes. We told him what we experienced in our meditation, and then we picked up the uh, next meditation steps and what we were to do for the next day. And during the next 24 hours, then we were expected to meditate and practice 
not not in a group setting. We were expected to uh, practice on our own, uh, and so that is what I teach. So I will go down there. My normal I normally have anywhere from one to six uh, meditators, and I will meet with each one of them individually for as long as they. As long as as they need my time, I will spend the time with them. But that usually takes up two or three hours in the afternoon. And then I will uh, walk back up here to the temple and uh, do my own practice, read, study, do what I need to do. If there's evening chanting, I'll go with evening chanting. If there's not, I'll usually just take it easy here in my kitty and uh, either practice meditation or just uh, just enjoy the solitude, kind of the end of the day. And then uh, bedtime is usually around anywhere from uh from eight thirty to ten o'clock, depending mm. upon how the day is going. Good, good. And tell us a little bit more about the chanting and, and what is the what do you think is the essential uh benefit of doing regular chanting or, or daily or weekly chanting? Um what what is what is kind of the, the merit that's earned from that and, and uh and tell us and give us a sense of like it's it's is it was chanting like a prayer or is chanting like just recitation or how would you define it? Okay, all right. The ties, the ties, and the way chanting, uh, translate on Google Translate is it translate as prayer. Yeah, prayer, yeah. And the ties, and the prize, and the ties, when they ask me, they will go, Are you going to pray tonight? Yeah. Meaning, are you going to chanting tonight? It is not. A, uh, it's not chanting a mantra. It's not like Om Mani Ben Mahon or, uh, or repeating a mantra. The chanting we do in the Theravada tradition is the teachings of the Buddha. Now, we have some chants where we pay homage to the Buddha. We pay uh, homage to the Dharma, the uh, teachings of the Buddha. And we pay homage to the Sangha, the uh, Sangha or the uh, the monks that actually reached enlightenment from uh, from practicing the teachings of the Buddha. But the majority of the chanting we do is either uh, is either homage to the Buddha or it is repeating the teachings of the Buddha. And the uh, the eighty four thousand verses the Tripitaka is what what is chanted, and the Tripitaka was uh, I believe was chanted for uh, three hundred years after the Buddha died before it was actually written down. But within ninety days of the Buddha's death, the uh, they had the first council. And the monks agreed on the wording and everything of the basic chanting is what I've been told. Excellent, excellent. And and there are uh, there are protection chants. There's parental chanting. 
Uh, there's the Abu Dhamma chanting that will be done at, at a funeral. There's, uh, there's, there's different chants, but each of the different chants is basically a teaching of the Buddha. I know in, uh, in Burma now, uh, Myanmar, there, there are eight monks that can chant the entire Tripitaka. They can chant all 84,000 verses. Not only can they chant it, but they're also qualified to teach it. Uh, I've been told the exam for that, just, just the examination, I, I don't know how long the actual study period for this, but the exam is five years long. It's, it's what I've been told, and there's uh, there are monks that can chant the uh, first basket of the Tripitaka, the uh, the Dhamma and the Wamea, the rules of the monks, the basic 227 rules that the monks have to do. They can chant that, and they're qualified to teach it, and those number... I believe just below a thousand, and then you've got the second basket, the Desudas, uh, that comes down into the hundreds, and then finally, when you've got the whole Tripitaka with the Abhidhamma, uh, the last basket, there are eight monks that are that, that could chant the whole thing. Mm. Thank you, thank you, and um, speaking of this, so now when I done. Uh, you know, I'd gone to Thailand to do Monk for a Month, the program. Uh, there was some discussion around uh, the aspect of the non-theistic um, element of Buddhism in general, and specifically Theravada Buddhism, uh, you know, because um, the reason I brought up prayer is because, you know, it's kind of confusing sometimes for people who are passingly familiar with Buddhism or even, even intensely involved. You know, what the role of Buddha is and what the role of, you know, in Western traditions, we think of God, we think of a deity, but Buddha being like the, the place of enlightenment or the idea of enlightenment, enlightened being, and how, you, how, you, how you're able to wrestle with that, um, whether, or not we're, whether or not we're like praying to Buddha or whether or not we're receiving blessings from enlightened deities, enlightened beings, and how you wrestle with that uh, question of God in Buddhism and the question of prayer in Buddhism. And how it's defined differently, yeah. Okay, what I do, and I, and I get a lot of monks that will look at me and go, what I basically try and do is teach the positive meditation without teaching very much Buddhism. Yeah. Uh, if, the, if the student wants to learn Buddhism, then, I'm, then I will teach the, the Buddhism term. But if they don't want to learn the Buddhism, then I will just teach them the meditation. Yeah. Uh, basically, we do not pray to the Buddha. The Buddha was a man. The Buddha, basically, he, he, was, he was a man that uh, was certain, looked for the truth for many, many years, came to a quiet forest in northern India and sat down under a tree. And and that's basically the story of, of the Buddha that I use versus the uh, the Pontius 
creed is, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and, and go on with that. I, I explained to people that the Buddha was just a normal man. He, he was born, he was looking for the truth, the ultimate truth, the end of, of aging, illness, and death. That, that death was something that you did not need to fear. And uh, and he's not a messenger of God. He's not uh, a, a son of God. And he is not a God himself. He, is, he became enlightened by practicing what he wrote down in the Dhamma. There was no Dhamma for the Buddha. So he had to become enlightened himself, and that's the reason he's a Buddha. Was he, he had no teachings to go by. Then when now the Buddha's gone, but we still have the teachings of the Buddha. Mm. And, the, and the teachings that are in the Dhamma are adequate, and some people want to debate, and they're Buddhist scholars, and they, and they like to engage in debate. Well, this wasn't actually what the Buddha word for word left. And I'm like, okay with that. It's not gospel. It's okay. What what the Buddha left behind is enough for a person today that if their karma is right, if they work at it, if they want to dedicate and put forth the effort, everybody that wants to put forth the effort can reach stream entry in this lifetime. In, in other in other words, they can they can end. Uh, you have you have to have a, a belief in the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. You have to have an understanding of the uh, of uh, the truth, and you have to understand the teaching on on non-self. And, and once you have, and if you basically have that understanding, then you can read stream entry. With, with Buddhism, there is no backsliding like in Christianity. You'll say, oh, he slid back. Oh, he went back to the old way. No, in Buddha, once you reach stream entry, then you're there. Now, you might progress down the path faster or slower based on your karma. And based on the effort you put forth in it, but you're not going to go backwards. Mm, interesting. And you can still, if you practice hard, if you put forth the effort, it's difficult to do in lay life, but you can, not everybody can be a monk, but uh, you can definitely reach Sokapana. You can definitely reach the first level of sainthood on the five precepts. Mm. Uh, if you once you dis, once you start advancing through the levels of enlightenment, when you Sokapana, Sakadagami, Anagami, and then when you reach Arahant, um, an Arahant should probably will be a monk or will be someone that has basically cloistered themselves in the temple. Uh, 
simply because when you're, when you're an arrogant, it is very hard to live the life of a lay person. You, you wouldn't be handling money. Uh, if somebody came into, if you worked in a grocery store and somebody came into the grocery store hungry, you would give them the food rather than charge them. It would, it, it would, uh, basically to reach full enlightenment, you do need to be, uh, living apart from society. Yeah. So good, good, and uh, and what is the the goal of alignment? Is that is is the goal really? A, would you say the goal of alignment is? So you're saying it's more an action than a state of being. Like what you so you're saying, like I, what I'm getting from that is that you know it's really defined through the actions you take, or is it defined through your experience of the world? How would you define that uh, that state of being? The state of being of enlightenment, in the in the way I define it, is that you need to see things as in the ultimate truth. You need to see things with no name and form. In, in, other, in other words, when you look at it that way and just use that criteria for it, the way I explain it is it's like you're a baby. When you're born as a baby, you don't know name and form. You know only ultimate truth because you haven't been taught anything. And then your parents and the people around you, they will think you, oh, that's a flower, that's a house, this is an animal, that's a dog. The flower smells like this, this is a spoon. But before you're taught that, all you see is things in the ultimate truth. You, you hold a fork. You know the fork is hard. You know you can stick a pea with the fork. You can use a spoon to pick up the soup with. You can look and you'll see the tree. You don't know what color the tree is, but you do see you see color, but you don't attach a name to the color. You see the shape, and but and but you don't see the shape as a tree because you haven't been taught what a tree is. And I think that basically that is what enlightenment. One of the first steps is is to just unlearn and go to the temple or, or wherever you need to go. Get quiet, get with yourself, and just unlearn everything that you have been taught and go back to what the ultimate reality of things are without the conventional reality that's been put on it. Yeah. And you can look at the, at the conventional reality and everything that started. Oh, he's Oriental. Oh, he's black. Oh, he's white. Oh, he's yellow. But when we're born, we just see, oh, wow, that person kind of looks like me. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, and, yeah, go ahead. And with the, uh, and, and that's, that is basically what, what I, uh, where I start with enlightenment. And then as you go on through it, you start to see and develop 
where you start to lose the fear of old age, you start to lose the fear of illness, and you lose the fear of death. You reach the deathless. And they refer to, uh, where I refer to it, as you, as you lose Samsara, you lose this world. The cycle of rebirth is ended. What needed to be done has been done. There's nothing else left to be done on this account, and everything's over with. And then uh, I, I usually refer to the uh, to Nibbana as the realm of non-existence. Mm. That, that you just you're 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 there in the realm, but you're not existing. Interesting, interesting. Uh, the, yeah. the last realm, the last of the upper realms, the four formless realms, um, the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. Uh, that's the uppermost realm that you would be at and still be in samsara, where you would have just a little bit of clinging to your body. Mm. But you, if if you have that little bit of clinging to your body, you, you're basically enlightened, but you still just want to have this existence, this little bit of body. Then you go, you're up in one of the four formless realms. They have a long lifetime, and you get over the fact uh, that you have this clinging to the body because those are the formless realms. You exist in mind only. You don't have a body. Yeah. Cool, cool. And uh, and uh, one thing I want to ask you about is emanations. So, are when you're in this, when the Buddha or I guess the Buddha, the Buddha enlightened beings have achieved this um, state of of non-being or being or non-being, uh, can they still emanate to us, or are they still possible to for us to see or perceive, or is this beyond uh, like Buddha? I guess we. We traditionally believe that the, he emanates, at least in my, at least in what I've been trained in, one of the traditions of Mahayana Buddhism, they say he emanates to his disciples. Uh, would you say that that's part of the Theravada tradition as well, or how would you how would you think of emanations? Uh, in the in the Theravada uh, tradition, I would say. <laughs> The, the Theravada tradition on that, and, and, and what I teach would be that it, that it would not matter uh, what level of sainthood I attained. I would probably never, ever claim that level. Yeah. I would never discuss that level. I, I say I never would. I might discuss it if I knew another person had attained the same level that I had. But, but uh, normally it, it, it's not necessary because you yourself know when you attain these states. And, and they say they're the, sta- the states of sainthood. And then you go back with, with, the, uh, with the Christians, and especially if you're sitting there with a, with, with a uh, Catholic or someone where they're like, oh, well, the Pope said he's saying so-and-so or saying this and saying that. And that's not how it works. These levels of sainthood, you personally know yourself when you have attained them. Yeah. You personally know yourself 
if you break the rules. It, it's it's like the four rules for a month. No sex, no stealing, no killing, and no claiming a superior attainment. Mm. Now, the moment I do any one of those four, I don't need to be caught. There, there is no witnesses. The moment I know in my mind and in my heart that I have broken one of those rules, then I know I am no longer a monk. Mm. And I should go immediately in this road. If I don't take the roads off, then I continue on as a fake monk. Mm. And I will receive the karma for that, which it would be a heavy karmatic debt. But in the Theravada tradition, we basically, you, you know when you have attained the levels. Yeah. You, you know what, you know when you're enlightened, you know you're enlightened. When you know, when you've reached the first level, of sainthood and become a Sotapanna, you know you are a Sotapanna. What I tell people and tell my students, because Westerners, not so much the Easterners, not so much the Thais, but the Westerners are, uh, are more concerned with this. They, they like to have, okay, well, I like to reach this first level. Then I like to move to this level. Then I like to move to the next level, and they're like, well, how can I tell if I'm advancing? And what I tell them is very simply, things that used to bother you will no longer bother you. And what my Prajan told me, he said, quite and you'll hear people say, well, try and be the, a better person tomorrow than you were today. Mm. He, he's like, don't, don't do that. He goes, don't try and be a better person this week than you were last week. Yeah. Because you really don't need to worry about that. But ask yourself maybe... Maybe three or four times a year, if the question's really bothering you, ask yourself, am I better off at this point this year than I was at this same point last year? And he goes, for you, the answer will always be yes, as long as you're in robes. As long as you stay a monk, then there is just a certain progression that you have to, that you will progress along the path, just being a monk, being at the temple, and being surrounded by monks. And that is what I tell my students. Don't try and start chasing and looking for these attainments, because if you look for them, you're never going to see them. You're never going to find them. But when that question really bothers you, Look back over a year and see how you've progressed through the years. I'm fortunate in one thing. I have a guest that's a good friend of mine who wants to be a monk, and he was here when I was in white. In other words, we were both on the eight precepts together. Now, he went back to his lay life, 
but he still comes over here to the temple one, at least once a year or once every two years. And he goes, I have the advantage of like the other guests that come regular or people that see you every day, they don't see progression. And sometimes we don't see progression ourselves. But it goes, I see you, you know, how you progress from year to year. I'll, I'll see you, maybe I'll miss a year, and I'll see how you've progressed over the last two years. And I can sit and discuss with him. And, and clearly the one thing that we all that we agree on, no matter what the specifics are, it is things that used to bother you when I saw you before, those things no longer see, no longer bother you, and you progress beyond those. And that is truly the measure that I use of how we progress along the path. Thank you, thank you. So as we start to wind down, I just do a couple of quick announcements. Thank you so much. Are you listening to Radio for Brooklyn, independent listener-supported radio? Uh, the Truth to Power show, we are every Monday at 8 a.m. Um, Ready for Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us continue to stay on air. So support independent community media by pledging whatever you can. All contributions are tax deductible to post them to law. Uh, please support the monthly pledge or one-time donation at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Or you go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power and sponsor this particular show. Uh, if you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile apps on iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone and the Google Play Store for Android. Um, Radio Free Brooklyn's Drive to Five fundraising campaign is underway. In May, uh, Radio Free Brooklyn will turn five years old, and we need to raise $25,000 so we continue bringing you commercial-free independent radio for another five years. Because we think raising money should be fun, each month we'll be bringing listeners fun challenges with some great prizes. The first is a trivia quiz to find out just how well you know RFB. The top five scores will win a limited edition's 5th anniversary RFB t-shirt. You can also dial 718-673-8201 um, to leave us a message letting us know why you love RFB or to wish us a happy birthday. Your message may be played on air. Um, so we have a few more minutes. Um, anything else coming up for you as far as like, um, what, what are some of the things, what are some of the resources you think that people should investigate to, um, learn more about the different states, uh, you know, what it means to the different levels of attainment and, 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 and familiarize themselves with these. What are some resources you think you can refer people to? Uh, I would, I would refer people to, uh, Buddhamap. .net is a good place. Uh, access to Insight. Uh, Ajin, uh, Jeff's uh, website, Access to Insight. And uh, the book that I read that did the most for me was uh, What the Buddha Taught by Rahula. And, and those, are, those are three good basics to start. Uh, can I mention my own website? Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, if you would like to contact me or contact the temple or come over here and do a meditation retreat, we're uh, 
vipassanameditation.asia. Uh-huh. www.vipassanameditation.asia.vipassanameditation.asia.vipassanameditation.asia.vipassanameditation.asia.vipassanameditation.asia.vipassanameditation.asia.vipassanameditation.asia.vipassanameditation.asia.vipassanameditation.asia